My grandma Lyman spent the last eight years of her life in the memory unit in a hospital near my parents' home in rural Montana. From age 83 to 91, she moved steadily from the feisty, engaged woman I grew up with to a small shell of a person who slept most of the time. Her body was simply stronger than her mind. Once the county librarian in my hometown, June Lyman, was a voracious reader. She was active in her Presbyterian church. She kept a tidy, thrifty home. And she was a helpful, patient wife to my grandfather, who had widowed her many years before after a long struggle with Parkinson's disease. June Lyman would never have wanted to have ended up in a memory unit in a hospital, but there she was. There she was, neatly dressed in her blue slacks and flower print blouse. There she was with her sweater and her glasses and a magazine on her lap that she would never read. There she was, watching out the large picture window, waiting for a train to appear on the nearby railroad tracks. There she was, this little shell of a woman, But her story does not have a sad ending. God was not done with her yet. June Lyman had a role to play in that memory unit, an unlikely role, but a good one nonetheless. While an educated, accomplished woman, my grandma Lyman also struggled all of her life with being judgmental, and overbearing. Her tongue was sharp. She kept grudges like no one I have ever known. And she did not spread her love evenly either. We grandkids loved our Grandma Lyman and we knew to obey her. She was strict and she was right. So who would have guessed that old age would have changed her substantially enough to redeem the hard edges of her life? Who would have guessed that she would have a gracious final act? It seems that in my grandmother, Alzheimer's disease softened her strident personality. It erased the hard lines from her face. It made my grandmother kinder and more pleasant. I don't remember who you are, she would say when any of us visited her, but thank you for coming to visit me. In a rather uncharacteristic way, my grandmother would happily chat about long-ago memories without a single complaint about her current situation. And the nurses liked her too. She has a good appetite, they would tell us. And she always says, please and thank you. To see women much younger than my grandmother take such kind and loving care of her proved that she was a valued member of the community on that memory unit. And my grandma Lyman never missed the weekly chapel service. Now heaven knows what was preached at that chapel service. This was rural Montana after all. But my grandma Lyman wasn't there for the preaching. She was there for the old hymns. 
and she was there for the ritual. I come to the garden alone, the old rugged cross, how great thou art, amazing grace. She knew them all. Having been a church pianist herself, my grandma Lyman was transported once a week to a place of connection between her earlier life and the life that she had now. It was clear that her faith was a true line running through all of her years. God wasn't just present to her in the memory unit of the county hospital. God had been present to her all of her life. Her mind might have abandoned her, but her faith had not. Now, I don't have to tell you how aging is associated with loss. As we move from middle age to old age, we may gain wisdom and contentment, but we also experience bodily loss. Joyce Ann Mercer of Yale Divinity School describes this loss well in an article that she wrote for the Christian Century. She says, perhaps at no other life stage except adolescence does the body occupy such a premier place in defining the contours of life. But unlike adolescence, in which bodies pulse with energy and vitalities, the, body, the bodies of older adults generally speak the language of decline leaning toward diminishment and death rather than growth. Skin thins, dries, and loses elasticity, and in combination with decreasing muscle tone, forms deep crevasse-like wrinkles and sagging. Hearing and visual acuity diminish. Movement slows and becomes more difficult. Incontinence of bladder and bowels brings indignities, and the so-called diseases of old age speed up the body's distress. Okay, I'll stop already. (laughs) We didn't really come to church this morning to be extra depressed, right? But let me add one more thought from Joyce Ann Mercer, and this is the challenge that she lays out for us, so listen to her well. She says, coming to terms with physical decay, letting go of attachments to culturally formed notions of physical beauty, grieving the body's losses of function, and learning how to die are the central tasks of vocation in one's older life stage. And she's right, darn it. The body will decay. Disease will visit each of us. We cannot go back to more youthful days, so the challenge is to face squarely the coming years and to accept their challenges Those who follow the Christian tradition are now in the season of Lent. And I loved how Laura lifted a little of that up in the prayer. Last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, the marker of 40 days until Easter. Ash Wednesday confuses the secular world each year because capitalism cannot understand why anyone would willingly have ashes put on their forehead and be told by a priest that they are going to die. This is not a marketing concept that will sell new handbags or cars. The secular world thinks these Christians are just goofy looking for an afternoon until they wash the ashes off, but the ritual has deep inner meaning, a meaning we Unitarian Universalists would be wise to recognize as well. 
From dust you were made, and to dust you shall return, says the minister as he approaches us. And in that moment, we know that we too will die. But knowing we will die is not the point of Ash Wednesday. That would be way too simple. The point is to live better, precisely because we know we are going to die. Ash Wednesday shouts, live your best life now. Don't waste your life, it implores. Rearrange your priorities to add good to the world. The other thing Ash Wednesday insists on is community. We are not to strive for our own personal gain. We are not to turn selfishly inward, coddling our every desire. We are not to love just the people who are like us. Instead, we must shed our individual egos. We must care less about appearances. We must cease our craving for importance or legacy, or power. It is only in community that any of us will ever be saved. It is only in cooperation that any of us will learn to live well. Sometimes congregations wring their hands and wish they had more younger members. I know that never happens here. Sometimes they lament the loss of the teens that they raised. Sometimes they turn themselves inside out to try to attract those ever-elusive millennials or young adults. And sometimes congregations would actually be better off attracting the people in our society who need them the most. Older people who are fending off the ravages of age and loneliness. Again, Joyce Ann Mercer has something to say. As loss becomes cumulative and social supports diminish, older adults may experience the general loneliness of having too few companions. Retirement and its aftermath may awaken relational emptiness, a state particularly common among men in late adulthood who were socialized to form relationships around work roles. I don't think that describes anybody here. This sense of emptiness may turn to isolation when the crisis of giving up driving or needing assistive devices to walk or hear limit the ability to independently seek out companionship. Another form, she says, of loneliness in older adults is that which overtakes a person after the death of a spouse or a partner. The specificity of spousal loss cannot be ameliorated by adding new friends or companions as if loneliness were generic. But a person suffering such loss can be aided by support and friendship. Older adults who have extensive social support suffer less from depression. What if growth at First Parish in Concord, came from older adults combating loneliness and isolation. What if growth at First Parish drew in recently widowed people? What if growth at First Parish included your older neighbor 
who you worry is not getting out enough? What if you invited that neighbor to come with you to church on Sunday? One of the true miracles of a place like First Parish is that it is a multi-generational community. Here, nine-year-olds can interact with 90-year-olds. Here, teens are as welcome as retirees. Here, the older generations mentor the younger generations, and the younger generations inspire the older ones. I always want our congregation to attract people at all stages of their lives, and we would be wise to appeal to the general demographics of the towns from which we draw. For a variety of reasons, Concord and the surrounding towns are aging much more rapidly than the average U.S. population. What if we saw this trend as a golden opportunity to add incredible value to the lives of older Americans? How amazing would that be? What if we opened our doors even more widely to the people who most likely need what we already have to offer? As you know, we are in search for a full-time minister for pastoral care. We've enjoyed working with Reverend Marion Weisel for five years. She has been a tremendous gift to our congregation and its pastoral care program. She is simply retiring from ministry at the end of this church year, and we will begin with a new minister for pastoral care in the fall. The reason we are increasing the position from three-quarters time to full-time is that pastoral care at First Parish in Concord is full-time work. To adequately care for our congregation, a full-time minister and over 90 volunteers are needed. We devote many resources to caring for members of this congregation, and it shows through their connection to us. I recently heard a story of a newer member who found himself, who found us because his wife had recently died and he just really didn't know what to do with himself. A friend brought him to a gathering of the first Tuesday group and from that introduction he has found a home here. Not only is this his spiritual home, it is also a big part of his community. This new member of ours is thriving in ways that might not have happened if we had not been ready to welcome him in. Usually when I talk with members of First Parish who are close to death, I hear a deep level of acceptance with the inevitable end of their lives. These old, old people are not frightened. They do not try to bargain with me or with God or with anyone else. And often they have come to such a place of peace with death that they are not even interested in its particularities. It's an amazing freedom to witness. I have to think that this congregation somehow plays an important role in their acceptance. Maybe it was because the By Your Side singers showed up and sang at their bedside. Maybe it's because Marion and I visited a time or two. Maybe it's because their church friends wrote them cards and checked in on them. Maybe it's because they were able to sit in the same pew here on a Sunday morning week after week. 
Maybe someone brought them food. Maybe someone knitted them a prayer shawl. Maybe the little kindnesses built up over the years to a place where death seemed unimportant. I will never know just what it was that allowed that person to feel so connected to this congregation. I do know that faith and faithfulness played a part. So be it. Amen.